0: Just a content warning before we get started. There is talk of guns, hunting, obviously, an animal death or two is described, and we talk about some historical acts of violence. We should be on HBO Max. If you're a development executive at HBO, you can reach me directly at fogopodcast.com. Let's go. So... Just between asbesties, I am more worried than I'm letting on about hunting. I know I talk a big game. I tell everybody if I wouldn't kill the animal myself, I don't eat it. And I actually don't eat veal or lamb because I have tried them both and they just weren't tasty enough for me to kill a baby animal that threshold of tasty for sure exists they just didn't cross it for me and i'm telling you this because i'm buddhist i'm a terrible buddhist but i know enough to know eating meat is an act of violence when i buy meat at the grocery store it's like i'm hiring a hitman i'm not buying absolution i just don't want to get my clothes dirty but i have never killed an animal with my own hands The closest I ever got was as a teenager visiting Hanoi, Vietnam at a really fancy seafood restaurant. There you go and pick your own live seafood so you know it's fresh. My dad sent me to go pick the fish for the table because I was his favorite. So I followed a waiter to a massive swimming pool where everything on their menu lives. I pointed one out that I felt was big enough to feed our group. The restaurant worker scooped it up with a net and beat it to death by the side of the pool. That's apparently How you kill a fish like that? You don't just lob off the head because the fish is going to be served whole. The cheeks are actually the best part, so you beat it unconscious. I I don't actually know if it's unconscious or dead. I don't think anyone's done an MRI on these fish pre-steaming post-bludgeon, so I don't know if anybody actually knows. So I saw this fish get clubbed, and for many years, I had periodic nightmares about it. I'm probably gonna start having them again because I've never told anybody this. The nightmare was, I would be pulling out Tupperware from the freezer. So super normal, you know, like I don't even realize I'm inside a dream yet. And I look at the bottom of the container to check what leftovers are in there. And I see perfectly alive, glassy fish eyes blinking at me. Not a whole fish in the container. It's mushed up leftovers, but perfectly intact eyes that were recognizable as the fish I had chosen to die. Not a fish, literally, that fish, its eyes looking out at me. I do talk such a big game. I make fun of my American friends who can't stomach the sight of their meat's head or even little chicken feet. Like, bro, you ate that chicken's thighs five minutes ago. It doesn't hurt you to gaze at its feet. Like, don't be a fucking pussy. And I feel like I can say that as someone who saw a fish bludgeon to death in a fine dining context, but I'm American too. I grew up with air conditioning and microwave popcorn, and that fish haunted me. What if I'm a fucking pussy? What am I going to do? Am I just going to eat veggie platters for the rest of my life? Join a Buddhist monastery out in the suburbs? Ah! I don't have a plan for what my life looks like if I have to give up meat. So I'm really eager to talk to some hunters and, you know, see if they're Haunted by anything? I'm Ivy Lee with one E, and you're listening to FOGO, Fear of Going Outside. In this episode, I find some real hunters, and boy, do I have questions. Last episode, I talked to all the wrong people about all the wrong ways to hunt pigs. I even tried to see if I could hunt from a hot air balloon, but... After meeting some gun guys and being on their Second Amendment talk radio show, I learned that gun people and hunters are not really the same social group. I feel now an urgent need to find actual hunters for advice before I go too far down the wrong path. Turns out, Mariah Gossett, Fogo's producer who's been living the scavenger hunt with me, used to work with a vegetarian who married a hunter. Erin, her old co-worker, and her beloved Dave have a three-year-old son now. This is perfect because I have young kids at home and I am not excited about broaching the conversation of bringing guns home with my spouse. Their kiddo's name is Hank. Wait, so what animals do you have? I have two cats, two hermit crabs, and five chickens. Have you ever been camping? Yeah.
1: Yeah. One day I camped on the beach and said,
0: Blah, I hate sand going through the camp. I hate I hate that too I ask right away about the guns in the house with kids. That's what I really want to know.
1: What about the guns? Yeah, the guns are in a safe. I bought the safe when Hank right before Hank was born. Cause I never really used a safe. Well we always had guns growing up. You know, my dad didn't really hunt much. He he may have gone on a dove hunting trip with some buddies once once a year or something like that, but It wasn't until I really started showing interest in hunting that my dad kind of picked it up and we kind of figured it out on our own together when we were kids. And we all rifle hunted back then for deer and turkey and stuff. And so, I mean, we always had guns growing up, but they were always just locked in a closet or something. And, you know, I was always just told if you're ever caught messing with them, you're basically not going hunting this season. And that was enough for me because my dad knew me well enough. (laughs) that that was a a good enough threat, and then I knew he he meant it.
0: I don't think a stern warning is going to cut it for my family, so I'm with Aaron and Dave about getting a safe to hold the guns, even though gun safes cost a lot of money. But then Dave tells me he hardly hunts with a gun anymore at all. He doesn't really have a place to.
1: Most public land around here is bow hunt only. I started bow hunting in college because I realized it basically gave me a whole extra month of of hunting season. Ah. (laughs) And the public land that was around where I went to school was all bow hunt only, for deer at least, deer and hogs. So that's why I picked that up.
0: That's wild that people are hunting anything with bows and arrows now in Lizzo's century. Like at that point, why don't you just train a falcon I asked them to show me around, show me how Dave's hunting lifestyle physically fits into their family life, because whatever stuff is involved in hunting, whether it's guns or bows, it's all about to invade my house where I really live. They lead me to the garage, which is where most of Dave's hunting stuff lives.
1: It's kind of a little, my garage is a little. Whoa, there's, a,
0: there's a whole boat in oh, here. yeah, there's oh,
1: a yeah. boat. I bought that boat last year.
0: This is but, like Dave's um, lifelong yeah, dream of so, boat ownership. Yeah, there's one deep freeze There's a deep, deep freezer. Deep freeze. Sorry, there's stuff everywhere. Boots. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of stinky boots. Yeah. There's not a single vehicle except this boat in the garage. <laughs> there is no vehicle. <laughs> Last week when it was like hailing, I was like, man, I wish I could put my car in the garage.
1: <laughs> yeah. We've been cleaning. I need we need to get rid of some of this stuff. Yeah, but you guys yeah, yeah so most of this is. It's all meat in this freezer. I need to organize. There's ground meat, that's chorizo, breakfast sausage, a bunch of ground meat down there, steaks.
0: Oh, you have like your own special bags. Uh, let's see, what are the options? Buffalo, elk, <laughs> moose, antelope, or venison?
1: These are these are bones. I make a lot of bone broth. There's that's, that's all nice. broth and stuff up there, bone broth and veggie broth and that I've canned. Make a lot know. of soup. Yeah, make a lot of soup with stews and...
0: Um. Y'all, I cannot give up my garage to take up hunting. First of all, I love my car. Her name is Jacqueline because she's so elegant. She's a 2008 Lexus IS250 because I am an OG Asian baby girl. Also, all my camping stuff from last season is already in there. And all the Fogo camping mugs, the merchandise from last season, it's all still in my garage. And you can buy one for half off right now on fogopodcast.com. Please, please hurry. I need space for bones, apparently. Okay, back to Dave. And technically, Aaron's garage, but if you're looking at it, it's definitely not Aaron's garage, okay? There's decor in here that we need to address. Look at this poster. (laughs) Wild Things, America's National Wildlife Refuge, where wildlife comes naturally. We're gonna take a picture of this poster. It's got Teddy Roosevelt like the ghost of as Teddy like a Roosevelt. ghost. Yeah. That's why I love it so National much. Refuge Week, You're like, he's just emerging from the woods. <laughs> they're just like ghosts of all these animals. Are sure. these all endangered animals at Teddy Roosevelt? Endangered? Like what's <laughs> going on here with this manatee? I mean, they're not doing yeah. great. Well, Teddy
1: Roosevelt started the National Wildlife Refuge System, so that's why he's on the Dave's thing.
0: like, don't make fun of Teddy. <laughs> I mean, Aaron, you're the conservationist. Like, <laughs> I know. Is I just get tired of, like, the, the history of conservation is, is just, like, very, like, white men doing stuff, and it's, like, frustrating, you know? Teddy is short for Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the 26th president of the United States. He served from 1901 to 1909. You probably would recognize a picture of him. He looks like an old-timey Ron Swanson with that bushy, frown-shaped mustache. Plus, he wore those pince-nez glasses that hang on a chain and sit on the nose instead of the ears. But he looks like Ron Swanson because Ron Swanson is trying to look like Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was and is, for many, still the icon of a manly man and one of our best presidents. He was blustery and charismatic. He led a volunteer regimen called the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War. His foreign policy as president was speak softly and carry a big stick, which parts of Latin America are still reeling from. And he famously loved big game. He went on safaris here and abroad where he and his son would bag hundreds and sometimes thousands of kills on these trips. That's why I had no idea he was considered a conservationist until Dave said something. He was famously a hunter. To indoor people, Teddy is the anti-monopoly carry-a-big-stick guy from New York. To outdoor people, Roosevelt is known as the conservation president because he started the National Wildlife Refuge System, which laid the groundwork for the National Park Service and National Forest Service. It sounds like an oxymoron to be a hunter conservationist to us indoor people, but in fact, hunters very much see themselves as the conserver of the things they kill. So they don't have guilty Tupperware dreams.
1: Hunting is conservation. A lot of it also has to do with just like fundraising for conservation that's in true. general. yeah, that's um, true. Because the vast majority of uh, conservation dollars for pretty much most of the states come from the sale of hunting licenses. And then that's the money that's then used by the states to manage, you know, game species.
2: And there's also Pittman-Robertson, right? And
1: Pittman-Robertson yeah. is matched with which, what the states...
0: Do you want to explain what that
1: is? The Pittman-Robertsons? So Pittman-Robertson is a... Act. Act, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's an excise tax. So basically that people pay on guns and ammunition. Uh, there's some other archery equipment. I think boat fuel, there's some other other things like that that basically hunters pay, and that goes into a federal account. And so a lot of states match it by selling hunting and fishing licenses and
0: stuff like that to fund it. And then all that money goes to conservation. So what does, so I think maybe I don't exactly understand what conservation means then. I think the idea of conservation is just maintaining the environment like in perpetuity for as long as possible, you know? Yeah, and, like, some of that involves, like, humans are included in that, and human use is included in that, but doing things in a way that's sustainable so we can continue to have kind of all these natural resources and all these green spaces that we have. Hunting licenses fund government conservation programs. And importantly, hunters are proud of that. That's important because, like— All of us who have to buy gas, we pay taxes that fund interstate highway programs. But that doesn't mean that everyone who drives a car is a proud highway activist. In fact, many people feel burdened by their cars and would rather we invest in quality mass transit. Dave and hunters like him are glad to pay their share to maintain public lands where they hunt, even in places like Texas that don't have a lot of public land to go around. Why do you guys not have a lot of public
3: land? Like, what is that?
1: Yeah, I mean we have National Forests, we have National Wildlife refuges, we have state lands, we have, uh, you know, it's just not on the scales, the western states. I mean there is some public land around, it's just going to be a lot harder than trying to find a private place that just lets you come out. Yeah. Texas has, since it's mostly private land, it has a lot of like, some people call them day leases or whatever, you basically pay per day
0: finding some private land to go on, to pay a lease per day to hunt. Yeah, that's the language for what I need to be looking for. It sounds like a timeshare, but they don't call it that. It's called a hunting lease. So I asked Dave if he could refer me to any place he hunts where I could also buy a lease.
1: Um, We lost that lease in 2012, and I've been hunting Public land, pretty much, ever since, unless I get invited out to somebody else's.
0: Well, how do you lose a lease?
1: My understanding was the the landowner was land rich and cash poor, so they ended up selling that property. I see. And so the new owners didn't want hunters on their or random dudes. Random dudes. (laughs) It's basically, from what I understand, a a rich guy from Mississippi bought it so his family could hunt quail, but. uh, But uh yeah, that was a sad day. We hunted out there for 17 years before we got kicked off.
0: Even Dave doesn't have a reliable place to hunt in Texas. He goes on day trips to public lands or travels mostly out to the western United States to hunt. But he's given me a profile of who I need to find, which is a rich man from Mississippi or anywhere, really, someone who's land-rich and rich-rich to give me access to their land because the cash-poor part is what did Dave and his hunting buddies in, and I have a feeling that might be what's doing me and Mariah in on our hunt as well. Dave, Aaron, and little Hank gave me a lot to chew on. Uh, Metaphorically, also literally, they literally sent us home with some meat from the garage freezer, so that was awesome. He brought up the idea of bow hunting, which could make my married life easier. I am not thrilled, let's be real, about having to convince my beloved to bring a gun home for a podcast I'm making about going outside, a place he knows I hate. Firearms are the leading cause of death in children in the United States, and we have two little ones, but safety aside, we don't have space for a gun safe. Do you have any idea how much shit little kids have? Also, my beloved keeps asking me when I'm going to get rid of all the season one FOGO cups in the garage. Again, you can get them for half off right now at fogopodcast.com. That's why this season, the only new merch is stickers. How am I going to bring home a rifle and a gun safe? I can't bring home a box of FOGO t-shirts right now without upsetting the peace in the house. But also, what the hay is conservation, really? it feels so suspicious because when I think about it, I'm not sure if it's the same thing as environmentalism, which I think I know, or climate justice, which I'm familiar with, or is conservation just its own thing altogether? When we come back, I talk to an actual conservationist, like an actual government employee whose salary comes from these hunting licenses. I find out what conservation entails and try, as always, to get hooked up with some land or get literally any hint as to how to get hunting. Hey, welcome back. After talking with Aaron and Dave, we reached out to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. That's the agency that administers the public land we have in Texas, which isn't much, 95% 95% of our land is privately owned. The Texas Parks and Wildlife Department is also the issuing agency of hunting and fishing licenses in my state, which I haven't gotten yet. Because, if I'm being honest, ever since I talked to Rocio Villalobos last season, she's the indigenous outdoor activist who took me hiking after a flood, I'm much more conscious of being on stolen land. And I feel some kind of way paying to support the stewardship of stolen land. Also, Online hunter education courses to get your license are dreadfully boring. They're worse than the driver's ed courses you have to take when you get a ticket. Now, I don't have park ranger friends, okay? So we reach out to the Texas Parks PR department, all like, hey, I am a very important nature reporter with a very important nature show from the same platform as Meghan Markle and Joe Rogan. I name dropped them both just to cover my basis. I also asked Spotify to reach out to Joe Rogan's people to see if they could refer me to a rich man's property to hunt. Well, Rogan was a bust, but Texas Parks and Wildlife sent us a hunter. I want to know, how do I get started? Is there a trick to get access to land? And what exactly does conservation entail? he asked to meet us outside of course at mckinney falls state park not too far from austin's airport hey steve
2: hey ivy i'm ivy i'm steve and uh work at parks and wildlife and thank you for coming
0: well okay how what work do you do exactly
2: i actually am the hunter education coordinator Uh, i used to be the outreach and education director and then i retired in 2011. so in 2015 i came back but uh, I'm a naturalist at heart. I was actually trained as a wildlife biologist in in school at Colorado State University. Oh, cool. So I had to learn about Texas when I got here, too.
0: (laughs) Steve's got a Robert Redford vibe about him that's just lovely, and he's been a hunter all his life. Steve comes equipped with a stack of safety brochures, hunting magazines, and other marketing materials about hunting programs with Texas Parks and Wildlife. So you've been hunting for... How long now? Six well, years? Since I was six. Six,
2: okay. 56 years, wow. That makes me feel old all of a sudden. <laughs> Thanks a lot.
0: You hunt like, when you say you're a hunter, do you mean like you think about it all the time? You mean like you go every couple of years?
2: Uh, no, you go every year and you go probably five to ten oh. times a year. So.
0: You studied so much about wildlife because it was your passion and and now you hunt it.
2: Yeah, yeah, in in fact, that was kind of the niche that I went into because hunters are conservationists, you know, at at heart. We pay for the wildlife conservation, and so it was a natural connection. But I grew up hunting uh, with nine brothers and sisters, and most, all my brothers hunted, and they were all older than me, so I really definitely grew up hunting. And so when I went to, but I got the wildlife passion through hunting. And then, of course, uh, getting the wildlife passion, I actually went back to hunting, so it was kind of neat.
0: I describe McKinney Falls State Park where we are? Um, It's called Falls because there are several limestone creeks and little waterfalls, but the part I'm in with Steve looks like a lot of forest. So we're walking through a forest on this trail and it's just trees. Everyone says forests are green, but really it's just all different shades of brown and beige. The eye line is Ugly. The ground is also ugly. Every step we take sounds like uncooked ramen. We start out on a dirt trail, which is also brown, except there are a few juniper trees. Juniper trees are green. They're evergreen, like Christmas trees, and they grow like a teardrop, fat on the bottom and pointy up top. I didn't know that before I had a nature show. So there are a few of those dotting the landscape as we make our way to an overlook, naturally formed of rock. And we could sit down on this kind of rock bench, but we don't. We look down into this itty bitty canyon, which has a creek underneath it, probably, underneath all the, all the goddamn trees. Steve's wearing these expensive binoculars. He calls them binos, and he starts looking around with them.
2: You know, uh, the things that we hunt are all for the, the purpose of eating them, and then there's the fur bearers, which is the purpose of getting their fur and putting that in the fur marketplace then there's a third reason and that's nuisance animals like feral hogs and they they've become the biggest nuisance animal in in Texas now that's see that little bird that just came up on the tree there I sure don't where that's called an Eastern Phoebe keep your your focus with your bare eyes on the bird and then move these up to your eyes without moving your head
0: okay don't move my head find a bird
2: and then on these binoculars, you just move this back and forth to focus.
0: Steve gets distracted by birds a lot. This is going to happen so many times on our walk.
2: The one that's on its perch down there is called a eastern phoebe, and it pumps its tail. So when we'll see it here in a second, because what they do is they go from the branch, and then they go back to that same branch usually, or they'll go to another tree close by. And they'll be looking for the small insects.
0: Now that it looks so much more... Suggestive now that you told me it's called pumping. I'm like, now I'm like, oh, I see it and I feel inappropriate.
2: That's pretty neat with the sandbar behind it and everything. That's just neat right there.
0: It's a great composition. Like if I wanted to do a Chinese painting about like a drought,
2: <laughs> that's what there I goes. would do. Like. Now he'll come back and he'll go back up to a limb and then perch again.
0: Different limb there so what's comes, the pumping about dark. is it just trying yep, to fan itself
2: it um, that's a good question and that's what you should ask always as a biologist what <laughs> why does it do that you know so if you ask the question why a lot and that's one that I would probably look up again because I can't remember exactly why it does that sure wish
0: I had a fucking biologist out
2: here Yeah, <laughs> I know
0: Researchers only figured out in 2011 why Phoebe birds pump their tails. It's not to drum up worms to eat or to communicate to each other. It's kind of a nervous tick when they sense predators nearby. It signals to a predator that this birdie is aware of their presence, and she's a fast one that would be costly to capture, so don't even bother hunty. I redirect Steve from the birds I can't see with questions about how he hunts. So when you go out, do you kind of decide before you go out, you're like, hey, this is going to be like nature hike or is like, hey, I'm going to go find animals and kill them.
2: Well, I I watch birds all the time, while, even while I'm hunting. So mm-hmm. I might be hunting this animal over here, but I'm watching all the birds that are around too.
0: So when you're hunting, it's not like as objective oriented. You're not trying to...
2: Some people, you, you know, care. they're crazy. They're, they're, they're crazy-eyed about whatever they're going after, right? Mm-hmm. I like the whole experience and most hunters do where, you know, you're out there doing this, but you're watching these birds and you're seeing this kind of thing, and if you're getting up early and you go to the hunting, like say you go to a marsh, go waterfowl hunting in the morning, Mm -hmm. the marsh just explodes with life in the morning. Well, you got a choice. You could be sleeping in, or you can go to a marsh. You know, and when you're out in the marsh, it's just magical. I mean, the sounds, the birds, the everything. If you're hunting ducks, you're waiting on the ducks, but you're seeing all the other birds while they're while you're waiting on the ducks. You know? So
0: you feel like like folks that you hunt with, y'all are just using hunting as an excuse to go out and chill in the marsh?
2: For the most part, but we also obviously want to harvest meat, so it's the best of both worlds in that sense. You mm-hmm. get to you get to take home good meat and, if you, and, and shooting skills. I mean, shooting's fun. You know, uh, you gotta hit it, right? You gotta hit whatever you're after. And so you gotta be a little bit proficient with it. And so you gotta practice a lot and those kinds of things.
0: So when you watch wildlife, do you feel you're not? You're, are you? Do you feel like you're just proficient enough that if you get distracted by a cool bird every now and again, you'll still get your kill eventually?
2: Yeah, I mean I I bow hunt, so my sense is is I I'm waiting for animals to come pretty close. Uh, everything from elk, you know, deer and bear, and you got to get pretty close to them.
0: Steve tells me a story of how one time he sat so still with his bow that a squirrel crawled on him. Like a tree, which is revolting. But I'm more than convinced that this man is a bona fide hunter. I ask him about where to hunt. Do you feel like, because you've been hunting for like so long, so long, do you feel, and you're like in Texas doing this like Texas Parks and Wildlife stuff, and you train so many hunters? Do you feel like you have a Rolodex of folks that would literally let us go maybe? fly a hot air balloon and hunt hogs right over their
2: property? I don't. I, I would don't? want the same opportunities. In fact, you would think I'd have such to robodex, but nobody wants a hunter safety guy to come out there. Because I watch too closely. To <laughs> <laughs> Steve's
0: kind of joking, but only kind of. He is not a cop. But the game wardens are his co-workers. Game wardens are the law enforcement arm of the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. They have more police powers than the police. They can search your truck or your boat or your land without a warrant. They can enforce any police code and any outdoor code. So like they can fine you for breaking hunting laws and they can pull you over for a traffic stop anywhere in the state. So I get now why Steve doesn't have any standing invites with landowners that he can connect us to. But if Steve, who literally works as a hunting educator, has trouble finding land to hunt on... I'm really starting to stress about my chances. Now we have to hunt for land to hunt on? To For pests? Why? Oh, and Steve tries to sell me on a hunting license, too, which I don't technically need white man's paperwork to hunt hogs on private land any more than I'd need a license to put out rat traps in my own yard. So what's it take for me to get a hunting license?
2: Just to go to a, a store and buy one. I literally Or to just go buy online one. or to... Order one from Parks and Wildlife, or to just go to Academy or Walmart or any of the stores and just buy a purchase a hunting license. So it's
0: as it's as easy in Texas to get a hunting license as, as it is to just like buy a piece of legislation. You just check out. You go, can done. buy.
2: Yeah, you can just go and pick up a hunting license, and it doesn't. You don't even have to be a hunter because it does support conservation. It directly supports our game wardens' efforts to essentially chase the poachers, you know, and make sure that they're protecting the environment. So, and especially water safety, you know, people that boat on the waters, making sure that they stay safe and respectful of the environment. So Game Warren has a big job, but that's how we pay for a Game warden salary is through our hunting license sales.
0: So I saw that there is a Texas Parks and Wildlife online hunter education course, but it's like 12 hours of webinars. Do I really need it if I'm just going to go hunt wild hogs?
2: Um, yeah, you would still need hunter education. And and there's the easier ones and then there's the harder ones. But truthfully, you should just go to a class that we do, like a field course. Okay. Because then you get some skill exercises and then you get some live fire exercise.
0: This field course sounded perfect, but it was full for this year and they couldn't hook us up. They fill up faster than music festival tickets sell out. Just seeing how full all these courses are that are coming up in the next few months, I think hunting must be something people decide to do at least a year in advance, which, yeah, I didn't know that, and I really don't want to take that long to get out hunting. It's definitely too late for me, but if you want to check it out, you can check out the wildlife education offerings with your state parks and wildlife department. I do, however, decide to take advantage of the Texas Parks and Wildlife online hunting course, which is only $30. I had started the NRA hunter education course online because it was free, but I couldn't get past the musket loading segments. The NRA gives you multiple chapters on muskets after multiple chapters on other guns. Sometimes there are multiple chapters on just the parts of that gun. I clicked continue thinking I was done, but boom, another fact sheet on muskets. Then I tried the official Texas Parks and Wildlife course because of Steve and it was going well until I hit their musket chapter. I failed the musket quiz three times because I don't have room in my memory palace for Civil War technology, okay? So I couldn't pass the quiz and continue to the certification. But like he said, as it turns out, I don't even need to pass to get a license if I choose to get one, as most hunters do. We have about a million registered hunters in Texas, which is a little less than one out of every 25 Texans. If, like Aaron said, conservation is just white men doing stuff, I want to make sure, since the license might be optional anyway, depending on where I hunt, that I'm not actively paying into a system that harms Indigenous people. And hopefully, I'd love for him to tell me that I'm paying to support programs that actively redress the wrongs against Indigenous people, the people who used to steward these parts. If somebody's Indigenous and this is their heritage land that was taken from them, do they still have to get all those licenses and stuff to go?
2: Yeah, I mean, whoever the authority is... Um, so if you're, uh, so in Colorado, they, in places like Montana and other places and in New Mexico and in places in Texas, the native, uh, American lands, they have their own wildlife management formula
3: and their own licenses.
2: In other words, they manage their own, Uh their own, uh, you know, people used to call them reservation, whatever that spot of land is. They manage their own for wildlife, and in fact they do the same training that we all do. We all go through a school to be trained as a wildlife biologist. They do the same thing, and then they go back to their cultural lands, and then they're the ones that manage those wildlife. Because everybody, the bottom line with management is that you want to make sure that you don't eliminate any populations of wildlife. You don't make them threatened or endangered. And at the same time, you want to improve the health of the water, health of the air, and health of the habitat.
0: I like Steve. I do. But there is something about him saying, you know, they do the same thing as us in terms of wildlife management that just begs for a fact check. You know, like it doesn't sound like his first-hand knowledge the way he talks about everything else. There's a certain recitable, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 quality to it. So, after I leave Steve to do due diligence, I try to find indigenous hunters here in Texas to talk to. Texas has just a few acres of native-controlled land, and most nations who overlap here have their offices in other states. So we find a hunter in California known as the Decolonized Meat Eater on Instagram. I've seen hunters of color tag him in posts, too. So I ask if I can run some things by him before I go hunting. What are your personal thoughts on Teddy Roosevelt?
3: (laughs) He was a racist, so I'm like, fuck that dude. I don't care about him.
0: Meet Brandon Running Bear Harrell. He's Native American and Black from California, and he taught himself how to hunt. He's not a Teddy Roosevelt guy.
3: He wanted to see my people killed.
0: I knew there was something fishy about Teddy Roosevelt, but everything I found was breathless documentaries for boomer dads and surveys of American historians who rank him one of the best presidents we ever had. This is a highly suspicious fan base. Like, if this was the fan base of a restaurant, I would eat before going just in case. This fan base thinks they're objective. At work, this fan base is the one pushing to go back in person. Brandon, told me where to dig. He's a self-taught hunter, and he's also one of many, many voices in a chorus calling for the return of public land to be managed by the native nations who successfully stewarded them before colonization. It's called the Land Back Movement. Okay, first of all, could you explain what the Land Back Movement is?
3: Yeah, so Land Back, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it, but it's like a social ecological path forward where we are repeopling the indigenous landscape with the indigenous people that stewarded those landscapes, those places. And this is like both public and private land. Like I'm not making any distinction, any colonial (laughs) distinctions here. Um, But it's sort of like returning land to its original stewards. And because there's a knowing Like, not not just a belief, but like a knowing that the truth is that these places will not exist in the future without the indigenous people whose literal languages come from these places. (laughs) Their like social and spiritual structures are sort of like predetermined on the health of these ecological systems. It's only with that type of dedication, that type of connection that we're going to be able to see places thrive, public places thrive. Yosemite looks the way it does because there was a land ownership that allowed it to be abundant. And so we need to get back to that.
0: Yosemite doesn't get the shine she deserves for being the first land the government decided to protect for public enjoyment here. President Lincoln put the area under the care of the state of California. And then John Muir, the conservationist that Muir Woods is named after, invited Teddy fucking Roosevelt to come hunt and hear his case to make it a federally protected site, which Roosevelt did. Forty years after it became a national park, nearly all of its picturesque meadowlands and much of its biodiversity disappeared because it wasn't just natural. All its beauty was because the Miwok Indians had lived there and stewarded the land like their lives depended on it, because their lives did since the 1300s. That's why this whole continent looked like it did to the European explorers who landed here, full of timber and turkeys and fur bears. The pristine nature we're protecting, it never existed. It's a lie we told to transfer 86 million acres of tribal land to the national forest system, and 85 million acres of native land, even holy lands, to our park system. We created the Indian reservation system at literally the same time. An Oglalu spiritual leader named Black Elk said, Americans had made these little islands for us, and other little islands for the four-leggeds. In always these islands are becoming smaller. How could I be a hunter that either doesn't participate or just like minimizes my harm to indigenous communities on this continent that I am very grateful to be allowed to make a home in?
3: That is a big question. Yeah, I think hunters and conservationists in Texas, for instance, are participating in hunting kind of like with this assumption of we've restored deer to a landscape, and we've restored turkeys and mallards to a landscape when we had almost, ex- ex- you know, extincted them all.
0: I feel some real talk coming on. Yeah. <laughs> tell me, okay. Tell me, and, uh, tell me what's really like, because that—that's what's in all the Hunter Ed courses.
3: There are growing calls to indigenize the North American model of wildlife conservation. You're hearing it all over the place, right? With the Dakota Access Pipeline and the, you know, Stop Line Three, and a lot of these indigenous movements who are. On the forefront of conservation, TBH, hunters, I think, sort of like once again need to take big steps and advocate for centering of indigenous leadership. So I definitely recommend reading the book Hunting and Fishing in the New South.
0: I do read this book, Brandon recommends. The full title is Hunting and Fishing in the New South, Black Labor and White Leisure After the Civil War by Scott Giltner, who appears to be a quiet professor at Culver Stockton College in Missouri. It gave me a lot of context for why hunting is the way it is. Here in the South, where I've always lived, hunting had been considered a traditional right granted to slaves. And many slaves were quite good at it, in no small part, because a lot of enslaved people had to hunt to get enough calories to stay alive. So when emancipation happened in 1865, freedmen could go live in the woods. It wasn't private land or public land back then, it was just land being land— They could go out there to live and hunt to eat or trade and opt out of white employment altogether. And, well, a lot of white employers didn't like that because they were trying to be like, okay, slavery's over, wink, wink, but not really, right? So local governments passed all these laws called the Black Codes that used to be called the Slave Code, so it wasn't slick, to force freedmen back into white employment. Like, black people can't have guns now or own dogs because people hunt with dogs. And this is also when the hunting license, the crime of poaching, and the crime of trespassing were invented to control the movements of Black hunters. How do you think a bunch of rich white men convinced poor white men who had just fought a civil war against the government to agree to have their hunting activities regulated? Because they were promised it would only be enforced against Black people, like the poll tax, which would come later under Jim Crow. Then rich men levied it against the poor man anyway, because that's how they do. And why hunting feels like white people shit, because everyone who was hunting in a way that was different from how rich white men at leisure hunt, indigenous people in the West, Black people in the South, and I should note immigrants in the Northeast, they were pushed out of hunting, sometimes, oftentimes, at gunpoint.
3: for me, like finding other indigenous people to connect with is the fact that a lot of indigenous people and even black folks, but I think this is mostly indigenous folks that I've encountered that hunt don't consider themselves hunter because it's just part of their way of life. Like I know this woman, Joy, in Alaska, who brought her newborn with her on a caribou hunt in the middle of like on an icy flat. Hiking, stalking a herd of caribou with a rifle and a baby, killed a caribou, gutted the caribou out, packed the meat on her back with her baby like on the front of her, and brought that meat home in like negative 10 degree weather. And I think if you asked her if she was a hunter, she would probably pause and be like, I hunt, but I'm not. Like, I, I guess, like, who's asking? You know, she wouldn't really consider herself a hunter. She's just an indigenous woman living in Alaska. And I think for those reasons, it's hard to find maybe someone specific, like an indigenous hunter specifically.
0: I'm sorry, Brandon's mom friend did what? That was the most badass thing I have ever heard. I almost laughed at her not seeing herself as a hunter, but it reminds me of Rocio from season one, who didn't grow up outdoorsy, but her father had been an agriculture worker. He had, for years, slept nights in campsite conditions and worked days outside picking crops. He actually was infinitely more acclimated to the outdoors than outdoorsy people who have to invent high-tech textiles to stay conquering nature as a hobby. Sometimes, I can't believe an expensive wind jacket or hiking shoe can confer so much confidence to a person who would literally burn if exposed directly to daylight— which outside is admitted from the sky. Mm. Maybe it's not the jacket. Maybe it's the price of the jacket. Maybe it's not the confidence of actually being a great survivalist or a great hunter. It's the confidence of not having to work outside, of not needing the meat. Is there anything else as like somebody on the other side of hunting, on the other side of their first hunt that you want me to take with me? I think
3: like, I mean, you're not alone. You come from a long line of folks who are like strong and have like had strength in these like scary moments and like just tap, tap into that if you can, you know, I don't, it's easier said than done, but like, you're not weird or crazy. And it's not like, Oh man, these guys have such rich cultures and traditions and hunting. How could I ever, it's like, No, you do too. (laughs) You know, you belong there for sure. And I think you can do a lot of good out there, you know, and have fun. Respect to the animals, you know, like they're feral and people see them as vermin, but they're going to become a native species here, whether people like to acknowledge that or not. They're just part of the landscape now. And so... I try not to use the term like native or indigenous species and things like that because indigenous people know, like we've always been moving to different places and mixing with other tribes. And like, you can't say who's from where and who's not necessarily. You know, maybe those farms and those ranches need to go down. (laughs) Maybe it's a fucking sign, you know. I'm a little bit on the side of the pigs.
0: If I get killed on my hunt by a pig, please don't kill it like heron bay. I have no beef with that pig. I started it and I had it coming, and I don't want anybody to get Tupperware snout dreams on account of me. We are already haunted enough as Americans by our original sins, which I swear to God, I am just as surprised as y'all are that I'm having to write jokes about genocide and slavery to make a show about wild hog hunting. I'm downright nostalgic now for last season when white people shit was just a funny bit to describe harmless things like unicycles, s'mores, and REI. I don't think I've ever undertaken anything so historically hostile, except maybe voting. Actually, I went to a weed dispensary once and our war on drugs was pretty messy. But still, I didn't need determination to get access to the store, just a valid ID. And I had a coupon. I did have a coupon, it was 20% off. Mariah and I have had a lot of good leads on landfall through. And hearing that Dave and Steve don't have good places to go hunt in Texas, it doesn't bode well. But. Hearing Brandon's determination to regain his heritage skill that was taken from him, well, let's just say, if I don't figure out how to go hunting and he asks me about it later, that would for sure make me feel like I'm a fucking pussy. Honestly, I a little bit wanna go hunting out of spite right now. Oh, and Brandon bow hunts too. They all bow hunt. Dave wasn't just some weirdo. I'm gonna keep running down land leads and meanwhile, I'm going to see if I can find somebody to teach me how to shoot a bow. Next time on FOGO. This does not look like a bow. This looks like what they use in um, Game of Thrones. FOGO, Fear of Going Outside, is a Spotify SoundUp series and was workshopped as part of the Spotify SoundUp Podcast Accelerator program. FOGO is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ivy Lee. We are produced and edited by Mariah Gossett. Engineering, mixing, and additional sound design by Robin Edgar. Our theme song and original music are composed by Michelangelo Rodriguez, story editing by Wei. production support by Benjamin Grozes-Eastrup. FOGO's board of advisors is Jeff Chow and Martin Thomas. From Spotify, our executive producers are Miguel Contreras, Grace Delia, Jane Zimwalt, and Natalie Tullock. Spotify production support by Shirley Ramos. And special thanks to the rest of the Spotify team. Listen to Fogo, Fear of Going Outside, for free on Spotify. You can follow me on just about every social media platform at Ivy Lee with one E, that phrase all spelled out. And you can see pictures of Dave's Garage on Fogo's Instagram account at Fogo Podcast. Go to fogopodcast.com for the newsletter, transcripts, and Fogo cups half off right now, as well as some stickers. <laughs> squeak, squeaking. It's squeak, squeaking. That's squeak, squeak.
2: Are you pretty good? You're pretty good here. Here, to hear the crow.
0: Is, is it going quack, quack, ah.